Turn to Luke chapter 4, that account of the temptation of Jesus that uh, we were reading earlier. This looks like a a pretty uh, attractive plant. You might want to have it in the greenhouse, I suppose, or the conservatory. It's an Australian bush sundew plant. Uh, It's got a slender stem and tiny uh, round leaves that are fringed with with hairs that glisten with bright drops of liquid, uh, which look like dew, hence its name, the sundew plant. Uh, It seems harmless, and it's also very attractive, and many uh, insects are drawn to it, and drawn to dance on the uh, clusters of red and white and pink blossoms. Although the blossoms are harmless, the leaves are deadly and the shiny moisture on each leaf is sticky and imprisons any insect that touches it. And an insect that goes onto uh, the leaf will struggle to free itself. Uh, The vibration causes the leaf to close tightly around the insect and then this very innocent pretty little plant uh, eats up the insect, devours completely its victim. Well, in Luke 4, uh, Jesus encounters temptations which seem just like that Australian sundew plant. Uh, Satan's temptation seems so innocent in a way, uh, He sounds so plausible. It's hard, actually, to see what the harm would be in Jesus simply going along with what Satan suggests. And yet, if Jesus had gone along with Satan's suggestions, if he had succumbed to that temptation, the result would have been absolutely catastrophic. Jesus would have sinned. He would have sinned if he had listened to Satan. Now remember that when we speak about sin, a word, a church word, when we're using that word sin, we're not just talking about uh, the sin of robbing a bank or sleeping around, anything like that, which is obviously out there and wrong. We are speaking about anything that we do say or think, which... Uh, goes against what God has commanded or doesn't do what God wants us to do. And God wants us to live for him. Uh, Our purpose on the earth is that by living for him and giving him glory, we would find our highest enjoyment. Now, you can see straight away that none of us do that all the time. We are suckers for temptation. Uh, If we were insects, we'd be flying straight into the leaves of the sundew plant. Uh, We fail to to bring glory in our lives to God uh, day after day after day after day. And the great cry of our heart must be, if only I had a champion who could do for me what I cannot do. If only I had someone who could stand up to to temptation and who could fight the fight 
for me. Because quite frankly, I'm not up to it, and neither are you. And we need a champion. Well, we're going to see uh, how Jesus has come to be that champion. And this temptation in the desert is, if you like, putting into sharp focus what actually happened throughout Jesus' life. Throughout Jesus' life, there was a temptation to be drawn away from the will of the Father. And we're going to see that Jesus, in standing up to temptation, is standing up on our behalf, as our champion, as our representative. So will you look with me then at the passage as we consider, first of all, how the the battle lines are drawn up, first of all, as we set the scene. And then... Uh, as we look at the, the exchanges that take place between the two. In other words, the, the temptations of what they, what they are. And then thirdly, the outcome and what that means for us. The battle lines then are drawn up. Notice the interesting sequence that there is in Luke's Gospel Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit and then he's drawn by that same spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. At his baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is always the Son of God. He is always sinless, always divine. But at his baptism, there is something like a supercharging of the Holy Spirit to equip him and propel him for his work. And so Luke will record, filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes. And you might have expected the anointing by the Holy Spirit to have the following kind of consequences. So Jesus went out and he preached to a vast crowd and everybody responded positively, understood the message and became disciples. Now, that of course could have happened. That could have been one of the consequences But it wasn't his heavenly father's plan. And instead, what follows on from that special time at the Jordan is a time of testing in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit himself leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus is weakened by the discipline of fasting. It was a miraculous experience. No person can can go that length of food unless God sustain him. But Jesus, nevertheless, I'm sure, was physically drained by it. Uh, He was learning to turn aside and to find in his heavenly Father all he desired. To focus upon his heavenly Father. And then, at the end of that time of fasting... Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, experiences the full ferocity of Satan's attack. Satan comes with these three temptations. So, friends, straight away, let's learn one simple lesson. That we can be in the center of God's will and still face times of torrid testing. Sometimes when uh, we're going through our ordinary lives and we bump into things which perplex us and challenge us. We think, well, if only I was doing, um, if only I was living differently, then this wouldn't have happened. This must be because I'm out of God's will. Not necessarily so. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in the centre of his father's will, led by the Holy Spirit, and he comes across this time of severe testing. So you may be doing all that God asks of you, and yet experiencing huge difficulties. The other lesson, of course, is that Jesus' temptation followed a, a spiritual high. Jesus was affirmed by the Heavenly Father, anointed by the Spirit, and then immediately afterwards we have this really difficult time. And you may be also able to testify that it's after we have felt close to God that sometimes Satan comes in, you know, wham bang, with the biggest temptation we've faced, and we almost trip up, we almost fall, because we've been surprised by Satan. And maybe that you felt really blessed uh, in your Bible reading, in your own personal devotion, or you felt God's presence in a church service, or you've been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ perhaps uh, to trust him. You have uh, begun to experience the reality of God. And Satan comes in with his greatest challenge yet. And you almost fall. And Satan delights to do this. He loves to try to take us by surprise. Okay, back to the battle lines. Remember that we said that this uh, genealogy, that the list of names that we find so difficult when we come across them in the Bible, nevertheless, they're often very helpful and they have clues there as to what's going on. And the mention of Adam at the end of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus is one hint as to what's going on. Because the battle lines in Luke 4 resemble the battle lines in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are tested, tempted by Satan. And Adam, when he is being tested, is tested not just as an individual, but the whole of humanity's direction hinges on Adam's, pardon me, response. And similarly, we have someone else now. We have a second Adam who is there as a representative. Jesus has come as the second Adam, and he is there not only in a private capacity, as it were, he's there representing all the people down through the centuries who will come to put their faith in him. And so we can, we can think about that a little, and we can see the, the, the similarities and the contrasts. In Genesis 3, Adam is in a garden and Satan comes and tempts him. And Adam, who was in a world of sinlessness, falls to temptation. And sin enters the world and blights the world so that even the ground is cursed. So it's appropriate that this second confrontation is not in a garden any longer, but in a wilderness. It's a reminder of the, the curse that has fallen upon the whole of human existence. Not just our own uh, individual persons, but the environment that we inhabit was caught up in that cosmic fall. And this second Adam is there representing a people. Now, if you were uh, one of the, especially if you were a Jewish leader, 
reading Luke's Gospel in the first century, you came from a people who had been prepared by your history to expect a representative. And if we go back to the list of names again, there's a name there, isn't there? There's a name of someone who was a representative for the people of Israel. Someone who was in a contest. And when he was in that contest, wasn't there just on his own account, but he was representing a, a people. And that name was David, wasn't it? The king, the future king, who stood up to Goliath. And when David won the victory, his people won the victory. And his enemies were routed. Jesus comes as our champion. He comes as our second Adam. And the result so different from the result in the first battle. Paul writes, for justice through the disobedience of this one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. They'll be given a right standing. God. Adam's tempted once. He sins and three curses follow. Jesus is tempted three times, passes every test, and God's blessings follow. Jesus, unlike Adam, lived in a fallen world, but he lived in it sinlessly. Adam lived in a sinless world, and by his actions filled it with sin. The battle lines are drawn. And then the exchanges take place. And the first temptation that Satan comes to Jesus with is a temptation to doubt the care of his Father in heaven. If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And we read that and we think, What's the big deal? What's the problem? Do you feel that <coughs> response as you read? What is the problem? Jesus could have done it. And Jesus would multiply loaves to feed the crowd in the wilderness later in his ministry. There was nothing inherently wrong with Performing a miracle to change stones into bread. But it was what it implied about Jesus' relationship with his father that was at stake. What's Jesus doing up to this point? He's fasting. And the whole point of his fasting is for him to, to focus uh, his mind and to settle his heart on the fact that he is trusting his heavenly father to provide for him all the way through his earthly mission. His father will sustain him all along the way. And Satan is subtly, so subtly suggesting that the father doesn't really care. He's not going to deliver. Time now, Jesus, for you to take matters into your own hands. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Remember how in the Garden of Eden, Satan is also so subtle and so wily in trying to convince uh, Eve that God does not have her best interests at heart. 
Did God really say you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> oh, Satan, you're so, so deceitful. You know well that God had only forbidden one tree. They can eat from any tree they wish. There's only one tree that's out of bounds. And Eve at this point is up to it and she says, God said that we could eat from any tree, but we must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan comes back at her. He tries to, to niggle and he tries to suggest that, that God again uh, is, not, uh, is not trying to, to, to be good to her, does not have her, her best interest at heart. God knows that in the moment you eat from that tree, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. How modern Satan's temptation in this way is. We're, we're told that we instinctively know what is best for us. If you want something and it's in your power to get it, the world tells us, get it. Your physical appetite for money or sex or power has always got to be satisfied. In our day, things that we want are turned into needs. Our luxuries we label our must-haves. Society tries to rub out the boundaries on all of our desires. There's nothing really which is out of legitimate reach. So we want something, or perhaps we want someone that doesn't belong to us. And that want becomes a need. And that need, we tell ourselves, has to be satisfied. And God tells us that there are times in our lives when we must simply say no to what our body cries out for. There are times when we find our rest in God. And we remind ourselves that God is enough. Our Heavenly Father does care. And his provision is always abundant. And all the way through Jesus' ministry, he will stress the spiritual above the physical. In Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say that the hungry are blessed. He'll pronounce woe on the well-fed. He'll send his disciples out without provisions. He'll tell his disciples to pray that their heavenly father might give them day by day their bread. Jesus taught that life is more than food. So the first temptation was to doubt the care of a heavenly father. The second temptation for Jesus was to win a kingdom without a cross. Satan leads Jesus into a high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, Satan has limited power. It's not what he tries to convince us, but he has limited power. But he can put on a good show. And he does here. I remember that uh, opening ceremony at the London Olympics uh, where they had uh, a kind of history of, of Britain right through from its uh, agricultural uh, beginnings through the Industrial Revolution and how they ended up with uh, portrayals of the National Health Service and Harry Potter and all these kind of things. It was a very, very dramatic uh, portrayal 
of the nation and its culture. Well, imagine how much more impressive, dramatic would have been Satan's portrayal of the glories of the kingdoms of the world. And all in an instant, it's an instantaneous movie presented before Jesus. Satan's saying, I own all the kingdoms of the world and because I own all the kingdoms of the world, I can give them to whoever I want. Satan, of course, you're lying again. You have no power except that which is permitted you. He's on a leash. Satan's saying, I'll gladly give them to you, Jesus. I'll confer these kingdoms and all you have to do, all you have to do is just, just bow down. Worship me. Not much. There's no one out here, Jesus. Just me and you. Just worship me. You can have it all. You can have the kingdom and you won't even need to go to the cross. It's a bargain. It's like uh, bid TV. You know, you're, all these things of great value and you can have it. You can have the diamond ring for £19.95 uh, before supplies run out. And uh, if you don't hurry, uh, the... The goods will no longer be there. It's a great bargain, Jesus. All you have to do is simply bow down and acknowledge me. You will have the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, Jesus has come to set up a kingdom. He's come to set up the kingdom of God on earth. He will come preaching the kingdom of God is near. But he has come on a mission. And the kingdom can't be won without going to the cross. The path to the kingdom is the path of suffering. And Jesus, again, goes to the word of God and he fells Satan from the word. Replying again from Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The third temptation is to test God by forcing his hand or trying to force his hand to act the devil takes him to the high point of the temple in Jerusalem and he quotes Psalm 91, the psalm that we sang, which is a messianic psalm. Uh, did you notice in the, the, the psalm the, the reference to the, the bruising or the crushing of the serpent's head? It's pointing to the Messiah. And some in Jesus' day thought that this would be literally performed, that they would see the Messiah being borne up by angels. And Satan is... Essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, there's not many people uh, who, who know you. Uh, fewer still that, that would recognize you as the Messiah. You can do something which will compel their acknowledgement. You can do something that's really dramatic. You can bring in the kingdom by throwing yourself from the pinnacle of the temple and you can be quite sure that you'll not come to any harm. Psalm 91 says that uh, he'll send his angels to bear you up. Go on, Jesus. Just do it. And our Lord sees immediately that this is not the path that he has been set on by his heavenly Father. This is to test God. And the context of Jesus' response uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And it goes on. As you did at Massa. Now Massa was a place in the desert. And when the, the people were, were wandering after they had left Egypt. 
there came a point where they grumbled against Moses. They were actually testing God. They, they said to Moses, give us water to drink. We've been brought out here to the wilderness to die of thirst. Give us water. And for Jesus, the sin would have been to doubt his father's goodness and, and timing. And to try to force his father's hand. Doing a daredevil stunt to get a quick response was not on the agenda. Jesus is called to a lifelong obedience to his father which will involve him serving his people by laying down his life on the cross. Well, we can put God to the test in different ways ourselves. We can uh, grumble when God's not meeting our needs. Uh, when we say things like, well, if, if God was real, he wouldn't put me in this position. He would do such and such for me. We grumble when we are up against it, and in doing that, we put God to the test. We can put God to the test also when we, we live recklessly. Um, we can live recklessly in a physical way. We can do it financially. Uh, we, can, we can say, well, you know, I, I can't really afford this car, but I'm trusting God for the payments. What is that but testing God, isn't it? Living beyond our means and then looking to God. Or when we buy into the, the, the name it and claim it theology, you know, the kind of uh, gospel prosperity folks who say, just name it and claim it uh, because you're a child of God. You're putting God to the test. You're seeking to force God's hand for the things that you want. And we're called to live thankfully before God, relying on his care and his provision and the perfection of his time. Right. What does this teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that Jesus from the very outset is willing to live in trustful obedience to his heavenly father. He has set his sights upon the cross and he will not be deflected from it. Throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, these temptations will resurface in different ways. The crowd will cry out. They'll want to make him a king. They'll want to force in a kingdom by political means. And Jesus will say no. His disciples will misunderstand him. When Jesus tells them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and handed over to the priests and religious leaders and be crucified, Peter will take him aside and say, No, Lord. This can never be. But Jesus stood up to every temptation which would lead him out of his Father's will. And throughout his life, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God. He died the holy Lamb of God without any spot or blemish. Now, friends, if you are not yet a Christian, you need a sinless champion. You need a saviour 
who said no to temptation at every turn. You see, the only way that any one of us will ever be in heaven is on account of perfect righteousness. Either your own or someone else's. I look into my heart and I urge you to look into yours. And I look into my heart and I see no possibility of a righteousness of my own. I fail God every day. And any one of us, I believe, who takes an honest look at our lives will reckon with our sinfulness and with our inability to do what God requires. And so, instead of trusting ourselves, we come to Jesus and we come to him as our champion. We come to him who not only stood the test in the wilderness, but throughout his life. And heaving this great sigh of relief, I cast my whole life on him and I say to him, Jesus, thank you that you have lived the life that I cannot live. I receive that perfection. I'm placing my trust in your perfection. Jesus, I thank you that you stood in my place. Friends, that's what it is to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Let me urge you from the depth of my heart, if you have never done that, to trust in Jesus. To do that today. And as we go on from that point, having trusted Jesus as our champion, we follow him as our captain. And he has shown us what it is to trust in God, our Heavenly Father's care. We need, as he did, to be living our lives in the independence upon the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and went into the, the desert. We need to ask the Holy Spirit each day to fill us that we might serve him, to live dependently upon the Spirit. And just as Jesus defeated temptation with the word of God, and incidentally, isn't it amazing that he did? The one who could have rebutted Satan with his own words quotes the Bible. Remarkable. You and I, we need also to have the Bible so much in our minds that when Satan comes to us, we are able to defeat him with the, with the word of God. You know, you're not going to have, or at least very often, you wouldn't have your Bible or a concordance handy when Satan comes to you. That's why it's so important for us to, to have it in our minds, to have it memorized, that we can use the sword of the Spirit in that way. And we need to examine our hearts daily. To know that we find in God our chief delight. Our chief delight. That's the test, isn't it? That we don't live by bread alone. Or in other words, we don't live, we don't find our satisfaction on what the world can give us. But Jesus is my delight. Jesus is my peace. The world can't give me peace, but Jesus gives me peace. Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my righteousness. Examine your hearts this morning. Is that the case? Is that the case? What would others say watching you? 
looking at the priorities that you clearly have in your life? Would they know from that that Jesus is your delight? Jesus is your peace, is your joy? Are you trusting God to provide for you? Are you resting in him? Hard questions, aren't they? We need to ask ourselves these kind of questions honestly, every day. And may God grant us grace to know Jesus as our delight and to trust our Heavenly Father for all that's good for us. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, our Father, we are so thankful, so thankful that we are not called to win heaven by our own perfection. We're so thankful that we have a champion in Jesus who has been tempted and who has triumphed through temptation and who is sinless. And that we can have his righteousness credited to ourselves. Thank you for that great freedom that we have in Jesus. Grant, Lord, that each one of us will know and be absolutely certain that Jesus is ours. And that you look upon us and as you are pleased with Jesus, so you are pleased also with us. And help us, Lord, to trust you day by day, and to be glad and happy in you all our days. In his precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Let's uh, close now. We're going to sing a a hymn that uh, speaks about fact that we have Jesus as our high priest, uh, he's in heaven now, uh, his earthly temptations uh, are over, but he remembers uh, what it is like, and he comes and aids us with his sympathy. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me.
And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back for the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.